Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, a podcast about the United States and the world in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I'm your host, Michael Patrick Cullinane. Welcome back. We have a special treat for this episode. Some listeners might recall that last year I was joined by Thomas Rise Smith, who had just published a book of Christmas stories uh, during the Gilded Age. It was called Christmas Past. And Tom got in touch with me to tell me that he's published another Christmas book this year. Actually, it's a full-length republication of Margaret Sidney's Five Little Peppers, an excerpt of which featured in his previous book, Christmas Past. Now, obviously, this one was so good, it needed to be republished in full. And Tom brought a friend and colleague, Dr. Hilary Emmett, Professor of American Studies at the University of East Anglia, to the show. Tom himself is professor there in American literature and culture, and the special treat is this. Hilary is going to read an excerpt from the book, and this is our first reading. I think it's a great addition to the podcast, and who knows, Perhaps we might do it again. I'd love to hear what listeners think about the reading. Let me say one further thing about the republication. It's the product of a collaboration with the University of East Anglia Publishing Project, which is the university's in-house print or publisher. Tom and Hillary tell me that every year the department teaches a class on children's literature, and they often re-release classic literature with the support of the university press and the diligent work of students. Apparently, from cover design to research, this book has the imprint of the students' work. So a massive shout-out to the UEA students who made it possible. And without further ado, a warm welcome to Tom and Hillary. Thank you. It's great to be here again. Yeah, exciting. Well, Hillary, this is your your first uh, interview on the podcast. Tom has been here before. Tom, of course, uh, with his previous book, uh, Christmas Past, which was a, a fun book to read in the, the holiday season. And we've got another one now, which is, you know, equally, I promise, equally as exciting. And I've read a little bit of it already because it was in, it was featured in the Christmas Past book as well. I think we should just start off with uh, the, the the book. It's Five Little Peppers, uh, the the author. Who is Margaret Sidney? Well, Margaret Sidney was uh, born in 1844, um, daughter of a, a successful architect. Uh, she, she came to writing relatively late in life or I think rather she was writing all through her life but there's a sense that her father maybe disapproved of uh, of, of women who who published 
what they wrote. So there was the family memory seems to suggest that she that she would write and kind of keep it hidden from the world. But in 1877, obviously she feels compelled to um to actually put her writing out into into the universe. And um that year she publishes a short story in the children's magazine that's called Wide Awake, uh, one of a number of literary magazines for children that 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 emerge in the explosion of, of writing for children that happens in the in the Gilded Age. And this story is about a family called the Peppers. And this first story is called um, Polly Pepper's Chicken Pie. Uh, and it introduces uh, readers to uh, Polly Pepper, but also her brothers and sisters and her mother and the little brown house that these children live in. And, and in a sense, her career just blossoms from there. Um, and she publishes another short story featuring these characters, and that's also popular with the readers of, of Wide Awake. And then in 1880, she's approached by the ed editor Ella Farman to um, produce a, a longer serialised story featuring the same characters. Um, and that is the book that we've republished here, Five Little Peppers and How They Grew. And it's an immediate literary sensation. And the Five Little Peppers are the kids, right? And 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 this is not just a sensation. I mean, Sydney goes on to to work on this sort of as a serialized thing for years to come, right? Yeah, it's incredible. She's 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 writing sequels up until 1916. And there are 12 Peppers books overall. So, you know, multiple generations of, of young Americans uh, experience these, these stories in their childhood. Uh, so running right through the Gilded Age, well into the 20th century. Uh, and then there's Hollywood adaptations later on. Um, so yeah, so it, it's it's a big part of popular culture for a, for a good few decades until it kind of disappears around. I think probably middle of the twentieth century, it, it fades from memory. You still find some some Peppers fans around, but I think um, that's one of that's one of the pleasures of, of, of republishing this book that it was such an enormous uh, phenomenon in its in, in the Gilded Age and really is not familiar to people nowadays, but the thought process behind this also was that this was a book that still had a lot to say about our own moment potentially as well for younger readers. Okay. Well, that, that begs the question, Tom, what is it about the book that makes it such a big contribution? I mean, I'm delighted that it spans this great breadth of time, but what, so you mentioned that it's got a relevance to today too. What's its importance then and now? Well, I think what's, what's unique about it in its own moment is that this was a book which um, put in the foreground, at least at the beginning of the first book, children who were stuck in poverty. Um, so the Pepper children are as you know, deserving poor. They work hard. Um, they don't get any education. They have to go outside of the house to um, to earn money. Um, there's never enough food. Uh, their stove doesn't work. Um, Polly Pepper, who is in kind of some ways the central character, um, is is constantly trying to, to to run the domestic interior while their mother works. Um, so these are children who are stuck in a very precarious um, financial situation. Um, so you, you, and uh, obviously this is published after a, a, a period of financial turmoil in America as well. So you know just because of the basic cost of living crisis issues that this was throwing up, um, the fact that this was a text that is very much about the disparity between rich and poor in America um, in a way that felt, you know, timely now as, as much as then. Um, so, yeah, so because of the way that it, that it focuses so clearly on the issues of, of poverty, of um, wealth, of charity, of, um, of what it means to kind of fall between the cracks, despite, you know, however hard you work, 
um, there's never quite enough food, to, um, things are just kind of falling apart around you. Um, that's what I think struck us when we were kind of thinking about what it meant to bring this book back to back to life. Yeah, I think also that kind of the age of extremes as well of the Gilded Age. And one of the things that really are kind of our students were able to to grab hold of and kind of grapple with while we were, were teaching this book this year is that the Met Ball, the Met Gala, had as its theme kind of a new Gilded Age, right? You know, the Gilded Age. And in some ways, I think that was supposed to be a bit tongue-in-cheek, a bit ironic, um, but it did mean that actually that idea of conspicuously displaying you know, your wealth, um, conspicuously displaying your taste, your extravagance, that was kind of back on the scene, you know, in this this really kind of visible way. And so it enabled the students to kind of think through what that means um, and, yeah, and what the kind of politics of, of wealth and display and consumption are and whether we do still, I don't want to give away too many spoilers about the book, but, you know, Thing, things get better for the peppers by the end of the book, right? And there's an uncritical, I think, embrace of wealth and stuff, right? You know, kind of consumer culture. Um, and, yeah, in, in, in this book that I think we feel a lot more sceptical about today. So it was really a chance, I think, for, um, for our students and for, for kids who might read the book today to think about things, right? Do, do we value things in quite the same way that, that they were valued in, in the 1870s, 1880s? when this book was written. So. That's a great reference to the Met Gala. I was thinking about uh, Rishi Sunak. So for listeners who can't distinguish the accents, you know, uh, Tom and, and Hillary are coming to us from the UK and Rishi Sunak is the prime minister who has a tendency to wear 2000 pound suits and Prada shoes. And meanwhile, food banks and now warm banks seem to be, you know, de rigueur of the, the new Gilded Age you know, in, in the UK. So uh, that that certainly resonates. There's also a theme that comes through here that I know Tom and I have talked about before too, that the Christmas Carol and that sort of Dickensian trope of um, the deserving poor and, you know, that they, they could sort of finish well in the end without giving too much away. I mean, I think everyone knows a Christmas Carol by now, but is this, is this, um, is it just sort of hitting the zeitgeist in America at a time when this sort of Dickensian literature is also quite popular? Yeah, I think so. I think I think probably the immediate precursor we would think about is 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 Little Women. I think that's the text that really um, there's an interesting comparison here that, that listeners may be more immediately familiar with. Um, and I think you could probably trace the lineage from Christmas Carol to to Little Women as well in in, in that way. But um, but if we think about the Little Women comparison, and that's a book that obviously starts at Christmas time, um, starts with kind of acts of charity towards the poor at Christmas time. Um, and there's definitely a sense that Sydney was in some ways working to a template that, that Louisa May Alcott establishes in Little Women. But I think that's what also allows us to see what's, what's special about this book, because obviously in Little Women, it's the March sisters who are bestowing charity upon others. Um, so, you know, they're, they're in a slightly financially precarious situation at the beginning of that book, certainly, but, but they're still, you know, maintaining a certain class position. But in Five Little Peppers, it, it's it's the it's the central characters themselves who are the recipients of Christmas charity, uh, and I think that's a that's a really interesting and kind of important um, distinction that, that that makes Sydney's book, um, yeah, I think uh, yeah, pr provide a, a rather unique picture of, of 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 life and Christmas in the late nineteenth century. Um, I guess, I guess it's as if you wrote Christmas Carol from the perspective of Tiny Tim, if, if Tiny Tim was the um, the focal point of a Christmas Carol, you, you, you might say. That makes perfect sense. Absolutely. 
Um, Hillary, before we actually started recording, you mentioned that, uh, you know, you could tear up a small bit with this, this book. Um, do you want to say a little bit something about the sort of the, the genre of sentimental writing and how this fits in that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so Tom's already mentioned Little Women. And so I think there's kind of there's there's two layers, I guess, to to how sentimental I feel of, of, about this book. And and I guess the first is actually just from my own childhood. So um, so as Michael mentions, yes, I'm coming from the UK, but I actually grew up in Australia um, and I read all of these books in Australia and they were so foreign and special to me because you know, I was reading about Christmas in, you know, in the US, but it was sunny outside in Australia. So this idea of being cold and, you know, needing kind of warm food at, at Christmas was kind of very foreign to me, but completely exotic. And I absolutely fell in love with it. And there's kind of no, you know, no surprises really um, that I, I ended up in graduate school in the United States and and I studied 19th century literature, right? You know, this was this was my Little Women, What Katie Did, even Anna Green Gables, which is Canadian. You know, these, these were kind of the, the books from my childhood. Um, but even as I learned the way sentimental literature operates, right, so sentimental literature had a really important political focus in the 19th century in America. So I think most famously, Harriet Beecher Stowe um, wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, you know, kind of like one of the great works of sentimental literature. And in some ways, that sentiment was really politically progressive in that it got people to think about what it might feel like to be enslaved, you know, what it might feel like to have your child sold away from you, um, you know, what it might feel like to be separated from your family and treated in this, you know, these very kind of like harsh ways, what it meant to be, to, you know, to be turned from a, from a person into a piece of property. But at the same time, there are a lot of really problematic things that go along with that around kind of essentializing, a, you know, a particular kind of martyrdom or goodness around the figure of, of Uncle Tom, for example. Um, so as scholars, we tend to be quite critical of sentimental literature. Um, but when I was in graduate school, I worked with a very fine scholar of, of sentimental literature, um, Professor Shirley Samuels. And every week I would come in to our 19th century literature class having sobbed my way through these books and everyone else seemed to be able to get some critical distance from them and to be able to talk about this in a really academic way, whereas I was still, you know, wiping the tears from my eyes, um, having read these kind of, you know, these 19th century bestsellers. So, so there's a little part of me when I read a book like Peppers that I'm just kind of a sucker for that kind of writing, like I was the target audience, but it also takes me back to being a kid myself in Australia and, and reading these, you know, with my mum and, and, you know, she'd read them because her mum had read them to her. And, and so there's kind of a, you know, a genealogy of women readers and writers, I think that's really important to me and, you know, kind of jerks on the, you know, the, the tear strings a little bit um, as, a, as I'm, I'm reading these books myself as an adult. So. So today when we talked about who was going to read, naturally it's Hillary now to see if we can draw a tear out. Um, but Hillary's going to read for us. I should have I should have said that I'm also terrible at picking up accents. I only picked up your Australian accents when you said peppers. Uh, but uh, but we're uh, I'm delighted that you're going to be reading this because I think it gives everyone a flavor. And I, as I understand it, it's going to be chapter 17, which is called Christmas Bells. Okay, so, um, so Hillary's about to read um, one of the Christmas chapters from Five Little Peppers. And... Um, the story so far is that the Peppers have um, befriended um, uh, a wealthy, a wealthy young boy called Jasper King, um, whose um, whose father is very rich, um, but is uh, a bit grumpy, not very happy, a bit a bit Scroogeish. Um, and Jasper's gone home after spending his holidays near, near near the Peppers' village. But he suggested to them before he goes that they should. Um, it might be fun if they tried to have a Christmas celebration, and this is something that 
um, such is the poverty of the peppers they have never done before. They've never experienced Christmas. Um, so in this extract, um, Polly and Ben, who are the elder siblings, have um, been working hard to um, get a, a Christmas celebration ready um, for their for the younger siblings. So they've procured a Christmas tree. They've um, they've cobbled some decorations together. Um, they've they've whittled some toys and, and found some presents to stuff into stockings. So so this is the the Peppers' very first Christmas celebrations. But um, as we'll hear, there are some surprises in store for for Polly and Ben themselves as well. Hilary, take it away. Chapter 17, Christmas Bells. In the middle of the night, Polly woke up with a start. What in the world, said she, and she bobbed up her head and looked over at her mother, who was still peacefully sleeping, and was just going to lie down again, when a second noise out in the kitchen made her pause and lean on her elbow to listen. At this moment, she thought she heard a faint whisper, and springing out of bed, she ran to Phronsie's crib. It was empty. As quick as a flash, she sped out into the kitchen. There, in front of the chimney, were two figures. One was Joel, and the other, unmistakably, was Phronsie. What are you doing? gasped Polly, holding onto a chair. The two little nightgowns turned around at this. Why, I thought it was morning, said Joel, and I wanted my stocking. Oh, as he felt the toe, which was gener generously stuffed. Give it to me, Polly Pepper, and I'll run right back to bed again. Dear me, said Polly, and you too, Phronsie. Why, it's the middle of the night. Did I ever? And she had to pinch her mouth together tight to keep from bursting out into a loud laugh. Oh dear, I shall laugh. Don't look so scared, Phronsie. There won't anything hurt you. For Phronsie, who on hearing Joel fumbling about with, with the precious stockings, had been quite willing to hop out of bed and join him, had now, on Polly's saying the dire words in the middle of the night, scuttled over to her protecting side like a frightened rabbit. It'll never be morning, said Joel, taking up first one cold toe and then the other. You might let us have them now, Polly, do. No, said Polly, sobering down. You can't have yours till Davy wakes up too. Scamper off to bed, Joey dear, and forget all about him. It'll be morning before you know it. Oh, I'd rather go to bed, said Phronsie, trying to tuck up her feet in the little flannel nightgown, which was rather short. But I don't know the way back, Polly. Take me, Polly, do. And she put up her arms to be carried. Oh, I ain't gone back alone either, whimpered Joel, coming up to Polly too. Why, you came down alone, didn't you? whispered Polly with a little laugh. Yes, but I thought it was morning, said Joel, his teeth chattering with something beside the cold. Well, you must think of the morning that's coming, said Polly cheerily. I'll tell you, you wait till I put Phronsie into the crib, and then I'll come back and go halfway up the stairs with you. I won't never come down till it's morning again, said Joel, bouncing along the stairs at a great rate when Polly was ready to go with him. Better not, laughed Polly softly. Be careful and not wake Davy nor Ben. I'm in, announced Joel in a loud whisper, and Polly could hear him snuggle down among the warm bedclothes. Call us when it's morning, Polly. Yes, said Polly, I will go to sleep. Phronsie had forgotten stockings and everything else on Polly's return and was fast asleep in the old crib. The result of it was that the children slept over when morning really did come, and Polly had to keep her promise and go to the foot of the stairs and call. Oh, Merry Christmas! Oh, Ben, Joel, Davy! Oh, oh, oh! And then the sounds answered her, as with smothered hoops of expectation, they one and all flew into their clothes. Quick as a flash, Joel and Davy were down and dancing around the chimney. Mummy, mummy! screamed Phronsie, hugging her stocking, which Ben lifted her up to unhook from the big nail. Sandy did come, he did! 
and then she spun around in the middle of the floor, not stopping to look in it. Well, open it, Frunzy, called Davy, deep in the exploring of his own. Oh, isn't that a splendid windmill, Joe? Yes, said that individual, who, having found a big piece of molasses candy, was so engaged in enjoying a huge bite that regardless alike of his other gifts, all the smearing of his face was getting, he gave himself wholly up to its delights. Oh, Joey, cried Polly laughingly, molasses candy for breakfast. That's prime, cried Joel, swallowing the last morsel. Now I'm going to see what's this. Oh, Dave, see here, see here, he cried in intense excitement, pulling out a nice little parcel, which, unrolled, proved to be a bright pair of stout mittens. See if you've got some. Look, quick. Yes, I have, said David, picking up a parcel about as big. Oh, no, that's molasses candy. Just the same as I had, said Joel. Do look for the mittens. Perhaps Santa Claus thought you already had some. Oh, dear. Here they are, screamed Davy. I have got some, Joe. Just exactly like yours. See, Joe? Oh, goody, said Joel, immensely relieved. For now he could quite enjoy his to see a pair on Davy's hands also. Look at Fron, he cried. She hasn't got only half her things out. To tell the truth, Phronsie was so bewildered by her riches that she sat on the floor with the little red stocking in her lap, laughing and cooing to herself amid the few things she'd drawn out. When it came to Seraphina's bonnet, she was quite overcome. She turned it over and over and smoothed out the little white feather that had once adorned one of Grandma Bascom's chickens, until the two boys with their stockings and the others sitting around in a group on the floor watching them laughed in glee to see her enjoyment. Oh dear, said Joel at last, shaking his stocking. I've got all there is. I wish there were 40 Christmases coming. I haven't, screamed Davy. There's something in the toe. It's an apple, I guess, said Joel. Turn it up, Dave. Tisn't an apple, exclaimed Davy. Tisn't round. It's long and thin. Here it is. And he pulled out a splendid long whistle on which he blew a blast, long and terrible, and Joel immediately following. All quiet was broken up, and the wildest hilarity reigned. I don't know as you want any breakfast, at last, said Mrs. Pepper, when she'd gotten Phronsy a little sobered down. I do, I do, cried Joel. Dear me, after your candy, said Polly. That's all gone, said Joel, tooting around the table on his whistle. What are we going to have for breakfast? Same as ever, said his mother. It can't be Christmas all the time. Wish it was, said little Davy, forever and ever. Forever and ever, echoed little Phronsy flying up, her cheeks like two pinks, and Seraphina in her arms with her bonnet on upside down. Dear, dear, said Polly, pinching Ben to keep still as they tumbled down the little rickety steps to the provision room after breakfast. The children, content in their treasures, were holding high carnival in the kitchen. Suppose they should find out now. I declare I should feel most awfully. Isn't it elegant? she asked in a subdued whisper, going all around and around the tree magnificent in its dress of bright red and yellow balls, white festoons and little candle ends all ready for lighting. Oh, Ben, did you lock the door? Yes, he said. That's a mouse, he added, as a little rustling noise made Polly stop where she stood back of the tree and prick up her ears in great distress of mind. Tis elegant, he said, turning around in admiration and taking in the tree, which, as Polly said, was quite gorgeous, and the evergreen branches twisted up on the beams and rafters and all the other festive arrangements. Even Jappy's isn't better, I don't believe. Wish Jappy was here, said Polly with a small sigh. Well, he isn't, said Ben. Come, we must go back into the kitchen or the children will all be out here. Look, your last, Polly. Won't do to come again till it's time to light up. Mammy says she'd rather do the lighting up, said Polly. Had she, said Ben in surprise. 
Oh, I suppose she's afraid we'll set something on fire. Well, then, we shan't come in till we have it. Can't bear to go, said Polly, turning reluctantly away. It's most beautiful. Oh, Ben, and she faced him for the five hundredth time with the question, Is your Santa Claus dress all safe? Yes, said Ben. I'll warrant they won't find that one in a hurry. Such a time as we've had to make it. I know it, laughed Polly. Don't that cotton wool look just like bits of fur, Ben? Yes, said Ben, and when the flower's shaken over me, it'll be Santa himself. We've got to put back the hair into Mamsie's cushion the first thing tomorrow, whispered Polly anxiously. You mustn't forget it, Benzie. I do want to keep the wig awfully, said Ben. You did make that just magnificent, Polly. If you could see yourself, giggled Polly. Did you put it in the straw bed? And are you sure you pulled the ticking over it smooth? Yes, sir, replied Ben. Sure as my name's Ben Pepper. If you'll only keep them from seeing me when I'm in it till we're ready, that's all I ask. Well, said Polly, a little relieved, I do hope Joe won't look. Come on, they're a-coming, whispered Ben. Quick! Polly! rang a voice dangerously near. So near that Polly, speeding over the stairs to intercept it, nearly fell on her nose. Where have you been? asked one. Concert, put in Ben. Polly was so out of breath she couldn't speak. Come now, each take a whistle, and we'll march round and round and see which can make the biggest noise. In the rattle and laughter which this procession made, all mystery was forgotten and the two conspirators began to breathe freer. Five o'clock. The small ones of the pepper flock, being pretty well tired out with noise and excitement, all gathered around Polly and Ben and clamoured for a story. Do, Polly, do, begged Joel. It's Christmas, and it won't come again for another year. I can't, said Polly, in such a twitter that she could hardly stand still, for the first time in her life refusing. I can't think of a thing. I will then, said Ben. We must do something, he whispered to Polly. Tell it good, said Joel, settling himself. So for an hour, the small tyrants kept their entertainers well employed. Isn't it growing awful dark, said Davy, rousing himself at last as Ben paused to take breath. Polly pinched Ben. Mammy's going to let us know, he whispered in reply. We must keep on a little longer. Don't stop, said Joel, lifting his head where he sat on the floor. What are you whispering for, Polly? I'm not, said Polly, glad to think she hadn't spoken. Well, do go on, Ben, said Joel, lying down again. Polly will have to finish it, said Ben. I've got to go upstairs now. So Polly launched out into such an extravagant story that they all perforce had to listen. All this time, Mrs Pepper had been pretty busy in her way, and now she came into the kitchen and set down her candle on the table. Children, she said. Everybody turned and looked at her. Her tone was so strange, and when they saw her dark eyes shining with such a new light, Little Davy skipped right out into the middle of the room. What's the matter, Mammy? You may all come into the provision room, said she. What for? shouted Joel in amazement, while the others jumped to their feet and stood staring. Polly flew around like a general, arranging her forces. Let's march there, said she. Phronsie, you take hold of Davy's hand and go first. I'm going first, announced Joel, squeezing up past Polly. No, you mustn't, Joe, said Polly decidedly. Phronsie and David are the youngest. They're always the youngest, said Joel, falling back with Polly to the rear. Forward march, sang Polly. Follow Mamsie. Down the stairs they went with military step and into the provision room. And then with one wild look, the little battalion broke ranks and tumbling over, over the other in a decidedly unmilitary style, presented a very queer appearance. And Captain Polly was the queerest of all. For she just gave one gaze at the tree and then sat right down on the floor and said, Oh, oh. 
Mrs. Pepper was flying around delightedly and saying, please to come right in, and how do you do? And before anybody knew it, there were the laughing faces of Mrs. Henderson and the parson himself, Dr. Fisher and old Grandma Bascom, while the two Henderson boys, unwilling to be defrauded of any of the fun, were squeezing themselves in between everybody else and coming up to Polly every third minute and saying, there, aren't you surprised? It's fairyland, cried little Davy, out of his wits with joy. Oh, aren't we in fairyland, Ma? The whole room was in one buzz of chatter and fun, and everyone beamed on everyone else, and nobody knew what they'd said till Mrs. Pepper called, Hush, Santa Claus is coming. A rattle at the little old window made everybody look there, just as a great snow-white head popped up over the sill. You screamed Joel, It's Santy! It's coming in! cried Davy in chorus, which sent Phronsie flying to Polly. In jumped a little old man, quite spry for his years, with a jolly red face and a pack on his back, and flew into their midst, prepared to do his duty. But what should he do instead of making his speech, this jolly old saint, but first fly up to Mrs. Pepper and say, Oh, Mammy, how did you do it? It's been, screamed Phronsie. Little old saint didn't hear, for he and Polly took hold of hands and pranced around that tree, while everybody laughed till they cried to see them go. And then it all came out. Order, said Parson Henderson in his deepest tones. And then he put into Santa Claus's hands a letter, which he requested him to read. And the jolly old saint, although he was very old, didn't need any spectacles, but piped out in Ben's loudest tones. Dear friends, Merry Christmas to you all. And that you'll have a good time and enjoy it all as much as I've enjoyed my good times at your house is the wish of your friend, Jasper Elliot king hurrah for jappy cried santa claus pulling his beard and hurrah for jasper went all around the room and this ended in three good cheers phronsie coming in too late with her little crow which was just as well however do your duty now santa claus commanded dr fisher as master of ceremonies and everything was as still as a mouse and the first thing she knew a lovely brass cage with a dear little bird with two astonished black eyes dropped down into polly's hands the card on it said, for Miss Polly Pepper, to give her music every day in the year. Mammy, said Polly, and then she did the queerest thing of the whole. She just burst into tears. I never thought I should have a bird for my very own. Hello, said Santa Claus, I've got something myself. Santa Claus's clothes are too old, laughed Dr. Fisher, holding up a stout warm suit that a boy about as big as Ben would delight in. And then that wonderful tree just rained down all manner of lovely fruit. Gifts came flying thick and fast, till the air seemed full, and each one was greeted with a shout of glee as it was put into the hands of its owner. A shawl flew down on Mrs. Pepper's shoulders, and a work basket tumbled on, on Polly's head, and tops and balls and fishing poles sent Joel and Davy into a corner with howls of delight. But the climax was reached when a large wax doll in a very gay pink silk dress was put into Phronsie's hands. And Dr. Fisher, stooping down, read in loud tones, For Phronsie, from one who enjoyed her gingerbread boy. After that, nobody had anything to say. Books jumped down unnoticed and gay boxes of candy. Only Polly peeked into one of her books and saw in Jaffy's plain hand, I hope we'll both read this next summer. And turning over to the title page, she saw a complete manual of cookery. The best is to come, said Mrs. Henderson in her gentle way. When there was a lull in the gale, she took Polly's hand and led her to a little stand of flowers in the corner, concealed by a sheet. 
Pinks and geraniums, heliotropes and roses blooming away, nodding their pretty heads at the happy sight. Polly had her flowers. Why didn't we know, cried the children at last, when everybody was tying on their hoods and getting their hats to leave the festive scene. How could you keep it a secret, Mammy? They all went to Mrs. Henderson, said Mrs. Pepper. Jasper wrote me and asked where to send them. And Mrs. Henderson was so kind as to say they might come there. We brought him over last evening when you were all abed. I couldn't have done it, she said, bowing to the parson and his wife, if twasn't for their kindness, never in all of this world. And I'm sure, said the minister, looking around on the bright group, if we can help along a bit of happiness like this, it is a blessed thing. And here Joel had the last word, looking around on the overflow of treasures and the happy faces. You said twan't going to be Christmas always, Mammy, Mammy, but I say it'll be just forever whatever you celebrate or if you don't celebrate at all have a very lovely new year hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.